We're going to be continuing our series this morning, Vision 2023, and bringing it to a conclusion with a final set of stories that Jesus tells the religious leaders after he clears the temple. So if you got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5 is where we're going to begin. Keep a finger in Isaiah 5, and if you're on a digital device, it's kind of hard to split these apart. But if you got your physical Bible this morning, Isaiah 5 on one finger and Matthew 21 on the other finger. Isaiah 5, Matthew 21, that's where we will be today. What Jesus does is articulate a vision of the kingdom that he was wanting Israel to fulfill, yet they did not. And we'll look today to see how that fits in or how it forms and shapes our own vision for 2023. So Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 7 read this way. By the way, we're going to be doing a lot of scripture today. We're going to let the word of God speak. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judea, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed. A place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. What an indictment upon the nation of Israel. God has strong words to say, and he does it through a poem and a song. What better way to give a stinging indictment than through what appears first to be a love song for his vineyard, right? And then it's got a barb at the end that, oh, wow, this is hitting home more than I thought it was. God uses the metaphor of a vineyard to talk about his beloved people. And he wished and he desired that his people formed by him to be a pleasant and wonderful garden and vineyard. That that people would produce sweet fruit. But though he did everything he possibly could, the vineyard itself ended up producing bitter fruit. And God brings judgment on that vineyard. He opens up the walls. He let it goes into decay. Now, I was, was thinking about ways to illustrate this this week. And uh, my wife and I, uh, over the past couple of years, we've been married seven years this summer, uh, have enjoyed houseplants. And that's always kind of been a running joke. And people are like, when are you going to have kids? It's like, we have five houseplants at home. And we love them very, very much. 
And uh, it took us like a year or two to figure out how, how to get or where to get the ones that don't die no matter what you do or don't do, right? You know, you have some of those that they can just sit on the shelf forever. And it's like, oh yeah, I've, I, I haven't watered that in three months. I should probably give it some life-saving water. And the plant is sitting over in the corner like, why have I been forsaken, right? Well, so our whole world changed in October when Micah was born. And all of our resources and time and energy have gone into just, uh, just taking care of him, right? And babies are very needy when they are young. I'm learning a whole lot about myself and about God in this, in this, in this whole process. And, uh, you know, I, I it came to the realization about it two weeks ago as we were kind of cleaning up around the house, that we had come to neglect our houseplants. Of course, we're not going to neglect our kid, right? He turns three months old on Tuesday. Like, we're really excited for that. It's crazy how much he's grown and just, it, it, it's so fantastic. I uh, started sleeping through the night at seven weeks old. And my wife always reminds me that you and him started sleeping through the night at seven weeks old. She's like, I don't get that uh, opportunity yet. Um, but we're thankful. God is, God is faithful. We realize that our houseplants have been neglected. And we've got a little corner of them that they sit by this nice east-facing window so in the morning they get all the sunlight. But they're looking a little kind of in need of water. And they're crying out, would you please give us some attention? And uh, we were talking about it. You're like, yeah, we don't know if we can do kids and a houseplant, right? And it's just, it's either a son or a houseplant. One of them will survive. And it's not going to be the houseplants. But this vineyard that God had, had established had come to be neglected because God pe- God's people had not done what he had asked them to do. And the fruits that they had produced had become bitter. You need this picture in mind as we travel back to Matthew 21. Remember last week we looked at Jesus in the house of worship in the temple and he had overthrown the, the tables and the money collectors and, and, and he said, this is the house of worship. On the heels of that, the very next day, Jesus shows back up at the temple. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They're a little worried. Jesus, are we going to do what we did yesterday? They demanded, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Who gave you the right? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us why we don't believe John. And if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believe John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think of this? And he begins to tell them a story that he was very excellent at doing. A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went away. Then the father told the older, the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he did not. Which of these two obeyed his father, Jesus asked. They replied, the first Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. 
Jesus has some strong words for the religious leaders. Remember, this is on the heels of the overturning of the money changers' tables. And he comes in and they're worried. Are we doing this again, Jesus? What authority do you have to come here and to teach? And he says, I'll tell you if you tell me this. What's up with John? What authority did he have? Is it heaven or earth? They don't want to get implicated in Jesus' questions. They feel trapped. They also feel like they're going to be mobbed by society. And so they pick a middle road, which is no way at all. We have no idea. He says, okay, let me tell you the place that you're in right now. There is an older son asked by the father, would you go? He says, no, but ends up going. Another son that, would you go? Yes, I will, but then I won't. Which one obeyed? Well, of course, the one and did the one who did what the father asked. And Jesus says, there's a group of people in our midst that first, at first they said, no, they're not following after me and my ways, but in the end, they end up following and doing what I've asked them to do. Those are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. There is another group, and he begins to point the finger at the religious leaders, a group that by name professes obedience, but by action does not follow through. And the religious leaders had indicted themselves that by name they looked forward to the Messiah. By word they had professed that he was coming, but when he actually showed up on scene, their actions did not show that they had accepted him. And the language in this passage, when Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go before you into the kingdom of heaven, in a way, Jesus is implying that they will lead the religious leaders into the kingdom of heaven. Now, put that on your plate for Sabbath lunch and take a big bite, right? That's some strong words that Jesus has to say. But the word for us today, and it was the word then, is this. God welcomes those who have once said no. Maybe you've said no to God in your life once before. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're like, yeah, no, I don't know, that's not for me. And then you begin to wonder, will Jesus accept me back? Jesus says, God welcomes those who have once said no. It is better to say no and then end up following than to say yes and to not. But we must be careful. Because if, we, if I was to, to tell you today that we are once saved, always saved, you accept Jesus into your life and then you don't have to do anything else, probably get thrown out of here and there will be several emails in my email, email box on Monday morning. But so often in our lives, we may not say it by our lips, but by our actions, that we will condemn somebody that once lost, they are always lost. We may even point the finger back at ourselves. Illustrated this way, uh, I regularly go to breakfast with some friends of mine Friday mornings, and uh, I get a text message early in the week, hey, we doing breakfast this week? And Connor's laughing because he's, he's a part of that group. And uh, sometimes I'll say, yes, absolutely. I'm there 100%. I'm going to be there. Got it on my calendar. Come Thursday evening or Friday morning, there's that sheepish text back to Connor, Mr. Mason, Sorry, I got my schedule crossed. I'm not actually going to be able to go. And then there are other times that the text message comes in. Hey, you're going to join us for breakfast this week. No, no way. I can't do it. I scheduled or whatever. And then come Thursday night or Friday morning, the reality, oh, I've got a window in my schedule that I can actually come. Which one do you think Mr. Mason appreciates a little bit more? Right? Probably not the one where I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And then, no, sorry, I, I can't come. And he chides me regularly about that. And I, I appreciate you, Connor, very much. 
God welcomes those who have once said no. And I'm thankful that a no sometimes still means that I, I can still have access to the fellowship and friendship that we share in breakfast weekly. Jesus continues in his stories that he's telling. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Now, listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out of grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Does this story sound familiar? Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a large group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir of this estate. Come on, let's kill him and we'll get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asks, what do you think he will do to these farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him the same share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read in the scriptures this? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they had been afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. What another story, right? Landowner, absentee, comes to collect. They're not giving him his share that was agreed upon in the contract. The landowner then does what was accepted. Go send somebody on your behalf to go, to go collect it. They're, they were treated poorly. Send another group. Maybe if I send a group of them, they will overcome them. They were killed as well. Maybe, just maybe, the landowner says, they might respect my son, my only son. He might be accepted and I might reap the reward of the harvest. But he too was killed. The landowner did everything in his power to execute the rights of the contract, even though the tenant farmers did not deserve the grace. He kept sending, kept sending. Maybe you will believe this time. Jesus uses this story as an analogy for what God has been doing for centuries. That there was a group of people, the Israelites, that remember he had talked about they are his vineyard and, and keepers of it. And God has sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, and Israel has killed them all. The prophets do not have a great track record in the Old Testament. If you ever uh, want to pick me up on how good your life is, just read Jeremiah, okay? That guy goes through so much junk in his life compared to what we do. God sends over and over, messenger, 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 messenger. 
And then God says, maybe they will accept my son. And he sends Jesus. And we know how the story ends. I'm sorry if you're watching The Chosen, the TV series, the main character dies. Okay, spoiler alert. Jesus dies. And not just the death of of old age. He is taken and stripped of his humanity and dies a criminal death. All because the religious leaders did not accept who he was, though they had professed him with name. God gives every opportunity to those who repeatedly say no. Said no once, do you have a chance again? God says yes. There will come a day where God draws a line in the sand that says those who have chosen me will be accepted into my kingdom. Those that have not to eternal damnation. But that day is not today. There is grace in the heart of God for all people. To those who repeatedly say no, God extends his grace upon grace over and over again to the point that he's willing to send his own flesh and blood. That is the God that we serve. And there's a play on words that Jesus uses in this passage that we don't pick up in English. We don't even pick it up in Greek. Because the story that Jesus is quoting is found in Isaiah, originally written in Hebrew. Hebrew is one of the languages of the day. Greek was perhaps the economic language, but Hebrew or Aramaic was the, the, the language of the common person. And there's a specific word in Hebrew used for son. Does anybody know what the word for son is? You know it, you just don't know it. Anybody? It's Ben. Ben is son in Hebrew. Benjamin, son of Jamin, right? So Ben is the, the Hebrew word for, for son. And Jesus says, the son was rejected by the, the farmers, right? And then he turns around and he says, haven't you heard that the stone that the builders rejected, that becomes the cornerstone? Haven't you read that in scripture? And we read that, we're kind of like, okay, what's the connection? Well, in Hebrew, Ben is son and Eben is stone. Jesus is giving a play on words and implicating himself and saying, I am that son. And by the way, I'm the stone that the builders rejected. The one, the cornerstone where everything else is laid around, that's me. And if you reject the cornerstone, you bring judgment onto yourself. God gives every opportunity to those who repeatedly say no. Jesus continues, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. told you we're going to hit a lot of scripture today. Jesus also told them other parables. He said this, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them the feast has been prepared, the bulls and fatted calf have been killed, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. Is this story sounding familiar? The king was furious, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. (sighs) Wow. (laughs) You didn't accept an invitation. I'm going to smite the whole village said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners, invite everyone you see 
So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. It's a retelling of the same story with different characters. There's a king, his son's getting married, and he wants everyone to be there, and he sends out the invitations, and he's rejected over and over and over again. And that rejection hits so hard for him. And he realized that nothing that he will do will turn the people away. And so he destroys the entire city. Think for a moment about what happened to the literal city of Jerusalem after Jesus left this earth. It was destroyed in the year AD 70. God brought judgment upon Jerusalem itself. The place that was supposed to be the vineyard, the one that was supposed to produce the good fruit, the one that God had poured everything in, that if you will do as I command you, the entire world will know of my grace, but you've only produced bitter fruit. And God stood in judgment against Jerusalem, and he stood in judgment against those who have rejected his invitation. So the servants go out. And Luke tells us that he goes out in the highways and the byways and he finds anybody that will come. And Matthew tells us that the good and the bad alike are accepted into the banquet. Let that one sink in for just a moment more. We look forward to that banquet day, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb depicted all throughout scripture, the representation of God with his people, and we dine with him together, and all who have accepted God are there, the good and the bad alike. We've got to set that one aside for just a moment. We'll come to understand that one here in a bit, but what God says is that God welcomes those who accept his invitation. Grace works like this. Grace is extended over and over and over and over again. God extended grace to the children of Israel over and over and over again. God has extended grace to you and me over and over and over again. And anytime we accept his invitation, he welcomes us into the family over and over again. God extends an invitation and says, would you follow me? Would you walk in my way? We take one step forward and we're welcome. Salvation is taken care of for us right then. We can leave today with the assurance that no matter what we face the rest of our lives, that God will save us. So we continue to accept his invitation. One day, Judgment is coming on this earth and over humanity. And God will draw that line in the sand and say, he who is holy, let him be holy still. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. Let the righteous be righteous. Let the unrighteous be unrighteous. And God draws a line in the sand. Only God has the wisdom, knowledge, and foresight to know when that line should be drawn. And I would wager that he is not the one who draws it we are the ones who draw it. And in the collective humanity together, that there will come a point in earth's history where those who have accepted God have accepted him and those who will reject God will reject him. But praise the Lord, that day is not today. God welcomes those who accept his invitation. Now, 
What do we do with the good and the bad alike? Isn't just the good people that get to heaven? Matthew 22, verses 11 through 14. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing what? The proper clothes for a wedding. Verse 12. Friends, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. The king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. It was culturally appropriate at the time that if you had the wealth to invite the entire neighborhood to a wedding feast, that you would also provide the clothing to the community who would be coming a part of the wedding feast. You think weddings are expensive today? Imagine buying clothes for everybody that's attending, not just your kind of wedding party that stands up on the stage with you, right? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of access to wealth that you have to, to show your generosity, generosity to all. And the way that the people at the door knew that you were a part of the wedding and you'd RSVP'd and your name was on the list is that you were wearing the clothes that the king had sent. That you were a part of the party. And the interesting thing is, is that wedding garment was an equalizer because the super rich who would want to come in and flaunt their wealth with the coats that they would wear were required to wear the garments provided. And the poor, the destitute, the people on the side who maybe not want to attend because their garment didn't look as good as everybody else and it had a hole here and a stain there, they felt the embrace of the clothes that welcomed them into that wedding feast. The wedding clothes are an equalizer. I think about it this way. Uh, Some of you have played intramural basketball or intramural sports, right? And uh, there, you know, some, depending on what league you're in or school or whatever, you got those like little mesh jerseys that are kind of one size fit all. And they maybe get washed like once. And then you've got to, you're like playing and you hope that you're playing the first game that night, right? So that you can get the fresh jersey. Because you know the second game that night, and you, and you sure hope that you're on the team that doesn't have to wear it, or there's one team that wears it, one team that doesn't. You hope you're not on the other team, because that jersey comes off, somebody sweated in it, and now you got to, like, climb into this, like, that's real fresh, invigorating. I'm going to be sweaty in a moment, and it's not going to matter, but right now, this is kind of gross. These are not the wedding clothes, Thankfully. Because what God provides in Christ Jesus are robes of righteousness. The rest of the New Testament runs with this illustration that Jesus, because of his bloodshed, it gives us a robe of righteousness that covers everything. The good and the bad. It's the great equalizer. When we are standing together on the, the sea of glass in heaven and praising our Savior, Jesus has come back. God is with us and we are with God. We're all wearing the robes of righteousness. And there's nothing that we've done to deserve them. There's nothing that of our blood, sweat, and tears that's gone into making that piece of clothing. The only thing that's happened is we've accepted the free gift of grace from God. Christ Object Lessons, page 311, puts it this way. The robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Nothing you do contributes or takes away from that robe of righteousness. All you must do is accept. Michael Green, commentary, the message of Matthew, page 231. 
There is room neither for embarrassment nor for pride in the feast of the kingdom because all is covered. All is covered. Over and over again, the stories that Jesus tells, these three, Matthew 21 through 22, demonstrates God's overextended grace. It's borne out in the history of Israel and it's borne out in the history of our lives that there is grace upon grace for those who will accept it. It is free and available. All you've got to do is come to the buffet table and put some grace on your plate. Grace upon grace. Every step of the way in Israel's history, God did everything he could to offer them grace. Those who had once said no, he welcomes. Those who would repeatedly say no, God still welcomes Those who accept the invitation, God welcomes. The conclusion of these stories is an open reminder that grace is extended to all, but few are chosen. we got to ponder on that for a moment as we conclude this afternoon. Many are called, few are chosen. It can be very easy to run with that passage and be like, aha, I knew it. I didn't need to actually follow Jesus because he calls a whole bunch of people and then he selects his elect. We call that God's determinism or a special election. And it doesn't really matter what I do because God's the one's deciding and I hope I, I make it into the good life. The essence of that word in Greek of the, the chosen, there's a part that the person who's chosen has to play. It would better read many are called, but few demonstrate their calling. We'll have to sit on that one for a little bit. The grace of Jesus extended to us must transform our heart. And we must demonstrate the calling of our Lord born in our lives through grace. That's how the world knows that God is something and someone to believe in. It's through your transformed life. To the grace that you've experienced. Todd Bolsinger, uh, famous for the book Canoeing the Mountains, great leadership book, wrote another one by the name of Showtime. And in it, he describes a survey that was taken in the mid-2000s that, though that's ooh, close to 20 years ago, we probably don't want to realize that, asked this question of a subsection of Americans. What word or phrase would you most like to hear uttered sincerely? What do you want to know? What, what would you, if someone were with utter sincerity, tell you something, what words do you want to hear? And the top three are this. I love you. I forgive you. Dinner's ready. I love you. I forgive you. Dinner's ready. Subsection of Americans, not just Christians, just subsection of Americans. I love you. I forgive you. Dinner's ready. That's the essence of belonging that we are loved, that we are forgiven, and we're welcomed to the table. Now, don't say dinner's ready and it's not, right? Then you you become a little hangry, right? Don't tell me that I'm forgiven when I'm not. Don't tell me I'm loved when I'm not. We must not just profess the love of God. We must live it on a daily basis. I believe that this study that was done and the American people responding back is so apropos to what Jesus has been describing in these stories. Because what he's describing is a God who declares over and over again, I love you, and he means it. I don't think we often sit with what it means for God to actually love us and to believe that he does. 
A God who says over and over again, I forgive you and means it. And a God who says, dinner's ready. Come, dine with me. So, a vision for 2023. What will we be defined as, as a community? I believe this year that we can be a community of grace where we say, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. Because we serve a God who says, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. And as we hear from God, the messages over and over again, the invitations over and over again, may our hearts not be hardened like those we looked at today, but may they be pulled higher by strings of grace that are dropped from heaven, a salvation for all of humanity. May we hear the words of God, I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. May that be the refrain that we leave singing today. Whatever tune you wanna pick, go for it. The refrain stays the same, I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. Then may we in turn embody what it means to be a community of grace. That we consistently show up with one another saying, I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. I think if we do that, we'll change the world.